mentioned over the last uh, maybe weeks, months, that our staff, our pastors, were reading a book together called Dangerous Calling, and we finished this book a few weeks ago and started on another one. But I wanted to bring your attention to this because this book was specifically written for pastors warning against the potential of living a double life, which can lead to spiritual shipwreck. And so the book is all geared toward pastors guarding themselves and guarding their lives and paying attention to what's going on in their own spiritual life, not just in the life of the church. Well, I was, as I was studying this week for the, the message, it came to my attention that on the original publishing of this book, you know how on the back you have endorsements by various people? Three of the five endorsements on the back of the book were from ministers, for pastors who have failed in their ministry. And so this book was just written six or seven years ago. And in that time, three of the five endorsements, all right, you don't get to be an endorsement unless you're making a splash in the kingdom, right? A, a, a big deal. You're making an impact. But you have three of the five. In fact, one was accused of being a bully, sexual harassment, authoritative behavior and lack of transparency in his finances, as well as misappropriation of the church funds. He was removed from the megachurch that he started. The other man had an affair, removed from his church, ultimately divorced his wife and married the lady that he had the affair with. And then the third one completely and totally renounced his faith. And this is a relatively common household name guy because he wrote a significant book that was popular about 20 years ago or more. But he totally renounced his faith, said, I'm no longer a believer anymore at all. How could that happen? How could pastors who were hand-selected to be, endorse my book because you're doing a great job in ministry. You're making an impact in ministry. Endorse, write something, and then three of the five. And one of the guys doesn't even say he believes any longer. How can that happen? If it can happen to pastors, it happens all the time to church members, to the flock. We just don't hear about that. Well, the Apostle Paul is coming to the end. And he's declaring in our text today, I've been faithful. I've been faithful to the end. I have not shipwrecked my faith. And I think this is such an encouragement for us all. And we have to hear this today personally because we're all capable. We all, we are all capable. And so here today as an encouragement to stay faithful, to be faithful, to trust God's grace, to remain faithful to the end. So we're in 2 Timothy chapter 4. In verse 6, six through 8, Paul pens these words. He says, 
For I am ready, already being poured out as a drink offering. For the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Let's pray and we'll look at this passage. Father God, we thank you for your word. It gives us truth. It gives us promises. It makes us aware of our need for you and the need of Jesus for salvation. And God, the same scripture that makes us aware of the need for salvation also warns those who profess him to examine themselves, to be faithful to the end, to not to shipwreck their faith. And God, as we discuss this today, may we truly, truly reflect upon our life and most importantly, reflect upon Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. In his name we pray, amen. So Paul, he's at the end. He sits shivering in a cold, damp Roman prison. It's subterranean, it's under the ground. This is, if you go back to that picture, this may actually be the picture of where Paul was held at and it looks a lot cleaner than it would have during Paul's time. And this little shrine or, or altar has been built to commemorate Paul and possibly Peter's stay there in this prison. But at the time that Paul would have been there, it would have been nasty. It would have been dirty. It would have been damp. And this is where Paul is. And he's a nobody now. He's in Rome. He's a nobody. He's lost his highborn status by choosing to follow Jesus. And as he writes to Timothy in this dungeon, his work in Ephesus, where he started this church, is being torn apart by religious fakes, by leaders who are pretending to be God, uh, being full of God, but really they're godless, the scriptures told us. And Timothy, Paul's pro protege, appears to be on the brink of bailing out of ministry himself, possibly. And there sits Paul, writing this letter. Someone once wrote this poem. They said, Two men looked through the bars, one saw the mud, the other, the stars. Paul looked up and he definitely saw the stars. In fact, he saw more than the stars. He saw Jesus. And no matter what his situation was, no matter how difficult it, and we can't even comprehend the difficulty that he had went through in his life and the difficulty that he was currently facing and the coming execution that was going to happen, he knows it's going to happen, we can't help but to say, thank you know what, Paul? You're an amazing inspiration to us. Paul, you kept your eyes on Jesus. Even in this situation, you could see beyond the circumstance and see Jesus. And why was Paul able to do this? I'm convinced that Paul was able to do this because of what he wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5. He says, you see, we, he and Timothy and others, we don't go around preaching about ourselves. We preach that Jesus Christ is Lord and we ourselves are your servants for Jesus' sake. So it was never about Paul. It's not about Timothy. It was always about Jesus. And that's why Paul is able to come to the end of his life, take inventory, and say, I'm ready. Because it was never about him in the first place. And so I think today from our text, I want to point out three truths that will help you stay faithful to the end, like Paul. The first is found in verse 6, where Paul says, for I'm ready, I am already being poured out like a drink offering. Your life is an offering of worship to God. 
Your life, if you're truly a believer, your life is an offering of worship to God. What does this mean that Paul says that I'm being poured out like a drink offering? Well, he's pulling from Old Testament imagery here. And the Jewish customs during the Old Testament was to take wine and pour it on the altar, the base of the altar, as a sacrifice was being given. And the smoke would rise up. And this was to be a pleasing aroma to God. And so Paul's using this metaphor and he's saying, my life is a pleasing aroma to you, God. It's been for you. I spilled it for you, and it's all for your glory. In fact, Jesus said the same thing in Luke 22, 20. He said, when he took the cup after they ate, and he said, this cup that is poured out is for you, and it's the new covenant, and it's my blood. And so Jesus is saying that this is poured out. This is an offering. My blood that was spilled on the cross for you and for me, that is an aroma to God. It was the covering of our sin spilled out on our behalf. And Paul says, this is my life spilled out because of Jesus. What you did for me, I'm doing it for you. My life has been a living sacrifice. And even back in Philippians, he mentioned this this sort of this metaphor before. And he says in verse 17 of chapter 2, he says, even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering. So in Philippians, earlier on in his ministry, He said, there's a possibility that I may die, but I don't think it's his point. But even so, I'm living my life as a poured out offering, just spilled out for Jesus. That's my entire life is just, it's an offering up to you, God. It's a sweet smell to you. But here in our text, we see there's a change of the way that he words it. He says, for I am ready. He knows the end is there. And think about for your life and think for me. It's hard for us to comprehend what we would think and what we'd feel and the fear, the anxiety that we'd face if we knew seriously our execution was just a matter of hours or days away. And it would definitely make us do some soul searching. But here's Paul realizing that the end is near and his attitude is definitely not one of fear or defeat. He is full of triumph. He's full of praise because his life has been focused upon Jesus and offering his life. And so he has no question, no struggle, no doubts what his life was used up for. He was poured out as an act of worship. Oftentimes at funerals you hear Psalm 116.15 quoted. It says, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. And that's what Paul is thinking. He's probably even thought about this verse himself, that I'm precious in God's sight as I'm nearing the end here poured out for Jesus. And if our life is going to be a life of worship, it begins with daily worship, plain and simple. If you want your life to be a life of worship, it must happen day by day, daily worship. It doesn't just happen one day. Oh, I want my life to be a life of worship. It happens every single day in our life. Speaking of this book, Dangerous Calling, I pulled out a quote from this because it says this so perfectly. It says, daily private worship puts the glory of God in front of me again and again because it forces me to face the sad condition of my world because it confronts me with my weaknesses and sin and because it showers me with God's amazing grace. It progressively makes me alert and ready for the things that God has called me to do and for the struggles I will face as I do them. That's why our lives, to be a life spilled out as a life of worship, 
Start with a daily act of worship to God. And we talk about this all the time. But how are you doing on that? What's causing you not to start your day or spend time not just reading about your Bible and saying a quick prayer, but truly seeing God, recognizing His greatness, recognizing your spiritual condition, and recognizing the only good that's going to happen in your life today is through His power and stepping into what He has for you, prepared and advanced, as Brian Parker texted me this morning, prepared ahead of time for us. And so our lives are a worship spilled out for God, but then he says, living this life of worship is hard. Living life as worship is hard, plain and simple. It's, it's difficult. Look at the three athletic metaphors he uses in verse 7. He says, I fought the good fight. He didn't say I showed up for the fight and watched the fight. He says, I fought the good fight. He didn't say I was a spectator in the race. He says, I finished the race and I have kept the faith. And though we don't relish it, suffering and struggling work for our growth toward Christ's likeness. It's in that struggle, it's in those difficulties that prompt us to rely upon God. We know that's the truth, don't we? Think about your life for the last couple of years. When did you rely on God the most? When you were at the end of your rope. When you knew that this is hard and I have nothing to, to give, I have to rely upon God. And struggles force us to need God. Struggles force us. And so this idea of the struggle, the fight, don't be scared of that. Embrace that because that's where God is working to make you more like Christ. So he says, I fought the good fight. I fought the good fight. And Paul probably had in his mind here wrestlers who were wrestling in the games or the events that happened all around. Their culture loved athletics just like our culture does. And I never was a former, I mean, a uh, formal wrestler. I didn't wrestle on a team but my older brother and I did a lot of wrestling growing up. Anybody have brothers and you spend a lot of time wrestling, all right? We knew better than to punch. There's only a couple times that we got mad enough to punch each other. But we spent a lot of time wrestling, falling through walls in our house and, and various things. And if you had brothers close to your age, you know what I'm talking about there. And so from these wrestling th times, I know these things could go on for a long period of time. And, and, and the way I would describe it is just extreme exertion. You need a lot of endurance and there's going to be pain, just you're, you're tired, you've been held down, and you're trying to get up, and you're just exhausted, you're breathing hard. And so that's a picture that Paul wants to paint here for us. He says, I fought this good fight. I've endured so much for the gospel. He's traveled thousands of miles on foot or on horseback or camel. He has dealt with many adversities, shipwreck and, and beatings and imprisonments. Yet through all of this, he realizes that he spent his greatest energies in the contest that truly mattered. And I, we have to be so aware of the fact that this struggle is so much bigger than even we're able to comprehend in our minds. Because Paul wrote to us in Ephesians and said that this struggle isn't about this adversity or this person I'm dealing with. He says, we don't struggle simply against flesh and blood but against the rulers and against the authorities and against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That sounds crazy, doesn't it? That the fact that your life is being contested by demonic forces, that there is truly an adversary who wants to destroy your life. 
and shipwrecked your faith. We forget that. I mentioned uh, some weeks ago that we do a father and son Bible study. Brennan started this uh, some months ago on Wednesday morning at 7 a.m. Anyone's welcome to come and be part of that. And we meet at 7 over here in the youth house currently. And the older boys have been trained to how to teach a Bible study. And then those of us who are dads, we've been thrown in here and there for weeks to teach a Bible study as well. And the week that I did this past week was on demons. And it was really helpful for me to truly look in the Word and see what Scripture has to say about demons. And I won't, I'll spare you with the details, but the truth is I came to the conclusion that I have not taken the spiritual warfare that we face seriously enough. Now, the opposite extreme is some people, they want to find demons under everything. They're, all they're doing is spending their energies looking for satanic forces and powers. I think that's a mistake as Christians as well. But I think we need to be aware what Paul's saying here in chapter 6 of Ephesians, that our battle isn't because this person's resisting me or this person is giving me a tough time or this person won't hear the gospel, but there's demonic forces truly at work in our culture, in people's lives, to blind them, Scripture says, from believing the gospel. And so it's hard. This battle is tough. And not only is it not against flesh and blood, it's against demonic powers, but it's also against our own flesh that wars and fights against us. As I was preparing, I was reminded just of Jesus' words in Matthew 5 when he talks specifically about the struggle with our flesh. And so many of the authors who endorse, or the people who endorse this book, their struggles with adultery. And just read this passage, it may be familiar to you. He says, You have heard it is said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that anyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. Jesus was saying this battle against sin is hard, is difficult. And I don't think Jesus is literally saying dismember yourself or literally pluck out your eyes. But I think what Heath Lambert says in explaining this is, is useful. He says, Jesus is urging something much more radical than a one-time physical amputation. He is telling us that when we are tempted to sin sexually, we must act aggressively. Every time we are tempted and in every way required to avoid the sin. And so that's what Jesus is getting at. He's saying that just a passive mindset in this battle doesn't cut it. He's saying it takes everything about you through God's grace that he gives you to fight. But just because God lavishes with his grace and enables us and works through us, it sure doesn't mean that we get a pass and don't have to make effort or try. Paul says, it's like a wrestling match. This thing's like a wrestling match. As you confront sin and pursue holiness, it takes everything that you have. It takes exertion. It takes power. But it's through God's power that you're able to do this. And so it's remember that this fight against flesh and blood, and this fight that's, that's against the demonic, sorry, demonic powers and against everything that Satan has thrown at us and against our flesh, it comes at us. But this is not just about 
I want to avoid that sin so I can feel better about myself, or I want to be do this. God isn't about making you miserable. God doesn't put these things in place so you can live a terrible life. Here's the fact is that many of you, including these guys here, can attest to the fact that sexual immorality leads to brokenness, sadness, emptiness, death, and hell. And if you've experienced it, you know what I'm talking about. And a life that's marked by those things It's not a life of worship. It's not a life that brings glory to God. People don't look at you and say, well, let me glorify God in their behavior. Let me glorify God in their choices and actions. God puts these here in our life to protect us so that we can fulfill what God has called us to do, which is to bring glory to him. And when we live a life that's holy and righteous, it leads to fullness. It leads to joy and peace and life. And these things point people to God. These things point people to our Creator, and they see God lifted up. And so the sad reality is Satan is throwing everything at you to shipwreck your faith. And your flesh is giving you all the fits that you can possibly deal with in order to shipwreck your faith. But Paul says, I fought the fight. It's hard work. He says, I finished the race back in verse 7. Even as he wrote this, he realized his long, towering race is nearly over. He's been running the course, and now he had his sight on the goal. Finally, he sees the end. He sees the crowd standing there. And as Hebrew talks about, we're surrounded by a great crowd of witnesses, and he sees the people waiting on him as he finishes all these examples that he has followed in Scripture. And he's finishing the race here, and right at the end, he's looking ahead, and he's saying, I finished the race. Back in Acts, he said, I considered my life worth nothing to me if only I may finish the race. Look at the commitment Paul had. He said, nothing matters. My life is spilled out and poured out to God. And my whole desire is to finish the race that God has put in front of me by his grace and his glory. And then he says, I have kept the faith. And you may think, well, how is this an athletic metaphor? Well, literally what it's saying is, I have not been disqualified from the contest. He said, I've kept my faith. I have not disqualified myself. He's been a faithful guardian and a resilient ambassador for the gospel. And he held on to the truth, and he's passing it on to Timothy and to others. And here we are today in the year 2021, continuing what Paul did what Jesus started because of him working and striving to pass it on to us. So to paraphrase verse 7, Paul saying, I have, comp- I have comp- competed well in this athletic contest of life. I have finished the race. I have kept all the rules. I haven't fouled out and so have been disqualified from winning. And then verse 8, he gives this final picture of this athletic imagery. He says, Henceforth, therefore, as a result, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. So what is he saying? He's saying, Jesus is the righteous judge, and he's our only hope. I'm thankful that Jesus is the righteous judge, because I desire, and I know many of you do, to pour your life out as an offering for God. And I know many of you realize and you're fully engaged in the battle 
against Satan and the world and the flesh. And sometimes we look at our lives and we think, I'm not doing so well. I've got a lot of failures. I've struggled. But you know your heart's in the right place. And you look to Jesus' character as your only hope because he's the righteous judge. You don't look at your own life. If I spent too much time looking at myself, I'd be so discouraged. But that's why we keep our eyes on Jesus, as it says in Hebrews, the author and finisher of our faith. Because he's the one that begins it, starts it, and he's the one that completes it. So in all this talk of effort and straining and hard work, you could walk away from here thinking, man, i got to go out of here and i got to work harder to make sure I get to heaven. I gotta strive harder so I can make it. But that's not what Paul's saying. Throughout his his works and his his, his letters, he said things like Ephesians, or I'm sorry, Romans 8:1. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Or Romans 8:30, for those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. He's saying it's as good as done. If you're in Christ, it's as good as done. And so the reason we don't have to be concerned on Judgment Day is not because we've done enough to earn it or we've been a good enough person. It's because Jesus did the hard work. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. His righteousness has been given to us on our account. Christ has his righteousness. The the, the word is imputed given to us on our account, paid on our debt. And that's why we have hope, because Jesus is the righteous judge. He's not a crooked judge. He's not a judge that's going to be unfair. He's true to his word. He's true to himself. And so the hope of meeting Jesus, the the righteous judge who will welcome us into his presence, is based upon the perfect righteousness of the judge. And here's the thing. If that doesn't motivate you, If that doesn't drive you, if that doesn't encourage you, if that doesn't change your life and the structure of your day where you say, I've got to worship this amazing God. I've got to be at the feet of Jesus because look what he's done and the love that I have for him because he placed the Holy Spirit within me. And the Holy Spirit cries out for the will of the Father. But that's the problem I think so many people struggle with and have is because there's really no change in their life, but they hold on to, I did this or prayed this, and it's all just superficial form of godliness that we've talked about. But there's no power, and remember what we talked about, the power? The power to pursue holiness. Not the power to instantly be holy, but the power to pursue it day in and day out. And Paul says, Because of the faithfulness of the righteous judge, he says, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. The crown of righteousness. Now, I can't tell you whether this is a special reward given to some believers because they were especially righteous or not. Some people believe it is. Some people believe that it's just something that all believers receive. I do know this, this picture of the crown is not the traditional crown, the gold crown, what you might think. It's a word used for these Olympics during these times of Greco-Roman competition where it would have been a wreath, and it was given just for the winner of the competition or at least the first few like we do in our Olympics today. But look what Paul adds to this. He says, 
it's not just for me, but it's for all those who have loved his appearing. So it's not just for the winner, it's for all who love his appearing. And so it makes me come to the conclusion, and what Stephen Cole adds is he says, perhaps Paul's meaning here is simply that even though his earthly judge, who was the evil Roman emperor Nero, had wrongly condemned him, he knew the righteous judge would vindicate him when he stood before him. And so he knew the righteous judge would vindicate him. He would receive the crown of righteousness. And all those who are faithful to the end will receive the crown of righteousness. All who loved his appearing. All those who say, you know what, Jesus, I, I, I love you so much, and I desire to be in your presence. I desire to know you more fully. But what's stopping you from feeling that way about your Savior, the Savior who died on the cross for you? What's stopping you from truly worshiping him and being at his feet every day? Because if you want to live a life of worship, it starts by day-by-day-by-day worship. And I know, looking out, you know, so many of you, your, your lives are just crazy. You have kids that you're dealing with, and you have a job that's overly demanding of your time. But we find time to do the things we want to do, don't we? We do. We find time to do the things we want to do. And here's my challenge to you is to really, really honestly take inventory of your heart. Because it would be a shame not to finish well, to abandon Jesus, or worse, to maintain this form of godliness, but have this secret life that's going on, and you've got everybody fooled. Again, we're not about perfection. We're talking about authenticity and and knowing your sin and, and, and seeking the assistance and help of others. That's why we call it Fight Club, because we know that we have to fight sin and fight for faith. It doesn't come easy. It's difficult. It's like a wrestling match. It's like a race, and we don't want to be disqualified. You know, the Bible warns us that professing Christians truly fall away. 1 John 2, 19, John writes, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. So basically, people abandon the church. They abandon the community of believers. And John says, if they would have been true, they would have stayed. And so I don't understand about some people who say, I don't need the church. I I don't like the church. Everybody's hypocrites in the church. It's just me and Jesus. We do our thing. I'm sorry. The church with all its flaws and all its struggles and all its difficulties is still the body and bride of Christ, whether you like it or not. And the truth is, if you're honest with yourself, you're every bit as flawed as the person that you're judging. And I'm preaching to the choir because you're here, right? But it's sad that so many people think, I can do this without the church body. You can't. 
Jesus made it this way. You need one another. Because verses like Hebrews 3.14 have to be understood and dealt with. Where the author says, For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. If we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Look, I strongly believe in what we call eternal security. Once a person's truly born again, they don't lose their salvation. But what I also believe from Scripture is true, that those who truly know Jesus and truly have the Holy Spirit, they persevere to the end. They stick with it to the end. Yes, there's going to be some ups and downs in your life for sure. But the trajectory of your life continues to go toward Jesus Christ. And so we don't lose our share in Christ. We just never had it in the first place. You notice he says in this verse in Hebrews, go back to that verse in Hebrews 3.14. He, he doesn't say we will come to share in Christ. It says we have come to share in Christ. We have come to share in Christ. So scripture vigorously declares that true believers will persevere to the end. They will stick with it to the end. And so here's my encouragement to Grace Church today. Here's my encouragement to you today. I'm going to start with the heart today instead of the head. The heart is pray for God's grace to keep you focused upon Jesus. Pray for his grace to keep you focused upon Jesus. Because the world is throwing everything at you that it can to say this is better than Jesus or don't believe that to be true. This book is 2,000 years old. Come on, it's not relevant anymore. It's not true anymore. Follow the science. And it's telling us all these things. They're saying, discount Jesus. We need the grace of God to stay focused upon Jesus. And our flesh is crying out. It's saying, you deserve that. You've earned that. This isn't happening, so you deserve to do this. Or God would understand, or he didn't make you this way if he didn't give you these feelings. Because he made you this way, he gave you this, so it's right to indulge. And so you justify all these things, and the flesh is coming at us. And then we don't deny the fact that the demonic struggle, the demons, the world, the flesh, the devil. Pray for the grace of God every day. God, keep my heart close to you. Keep my eyes focused upon you. And then what I want you to know today, the head, once saved, always saved, does not mean that we can ignore passages which encourage us to persevere and warn us against falling away. You need to hear that. Once saved, always saved, does not mean we ignore passages which encourage us to persevere and warn us against falling away. Right? And then our hands, as I've said two or three times, a life of worship begins with daily worship. A life of worship begins with daily worship. This series in 2 Timothy has all been about legacy. Paul discipling Timothy. Man, this, just studying this week has given me a, a newfound passion for discipleship. And, and just a, a new encouragement to be sure that I'm being diligent in my home. I mean, how sad would it be to go and to spread the gospel to many other people 
but to lose my own home. If we're serious about Jesus, we're going to be serious about discipleship. We're going to be serious about investing in Timothy's and others along the way. If Timothy could be struggling and about to throw in the towel and give up his ministry, there's many people here that probably feel the same way. I don't want to see anybody shipwreck their faith. I don't want to see the names of these guys who I followed say, I don't believe anymore, or I'm choosing this path. And all the people that have looked to them and been pastored by them and fail. I want you to pray for your leaders, your pastors. I want you to pray for your elders. And take this seriously. There's a battle that's going on. And, and today just is so fitting that this is Graduate Recognition Sunday. Because we got kids that we're going to send out to colleges and universities that are being used by Satan to promote such anti-God thinking. Have we done our jobs well? And so in a minute, I'm going to ask the seniors to come up here, and I'm going to ask our elders just to come pray over those. Before, before I do that, I'm going to ask somebody else to come up here first. Jeb Smith, come up here real quick. Hustle up. Jeb Smith is going to New York this summer. Just stand right here in the front because I'm going to have the elders pray over you also. Jeb Smith is going to New York this summer on mission, and he's helping plant a church, a church that's been there for a little while, right, helping this church. And I just want to say, I, I think guys like this deserve to be in the spotlight because not that Jeff's perfect, and those who've known Jeff for your lifetime will, will know that you know that he's not a perfect dude, but he's following God, he's pursuing God, and he's going to New York and giving of his time in order to invest to help this church plant and to be successful. And so we're going to pray over him as well as our seniors today. So I'm asking the seniors to come up here and our elders and, and pastoral staff to come join me. Just come and join me real quick here. Come on, let's move. Everybody's just sitting there staring. Now I ask our elders just to lay hands on these guys. We get the mic, get the chip. And Chip's going to pray for us. Just reach on the shoulders of some of these guys and just let's just pray for them. What an exciting time for these who have graduated, who are seniors, moving out into a different uh, chapter of their lives. And as we've read from your word this morning, life is a battle. It's a race. Uh, some of these guys have excelled in races during their schooling years. They've battled in sports. They've battled in the classroom to learn things. But the important battles of life uh, are those that we fight to uphold your glory. And as we've heard, there is spiritual darkness out there. There are spiritual forces seeking to bring us down to show to the world that there's nothing to this Christianity. It's just a facade. It's just a bunch of hypocrites. And so, Father, we join together uh, as ministry staff, as elders, as parents, as congregation, uh, 
praying for these young folks here as they go out. Praying that they'll hold fast. That they'll finish the race strong. That they'll keep their eyes focused on Christ. That they'll not allow the lures and the lies of the world to take them away. And it's a very real situation as they go out from their homes uh, where they've been uh, protected in a sense. They're going out on their own and parents won't be there to look over their shoulders. But you will be for you are everywhere and you know all things and you know your sheep. And so, Father, we pray for them that you would keep them strong, that you would keep them focused upon you. Help them to find good churches, good youth ministries to be in, good people that will encourage them in their walk for Christ. Remind them, Lord, that they are ambassadors for you. They speak and live for you. Uh, they're going out not just to, to tackle this next phase and, and succeed in school and on into career, but you're calling them to be your representatives to a world, as Pastor John said, that is increasingly dark, increasingly uh, against those who bear your name. And so give them strength. Encourage them. Remind them. Keep them focused upon Jesus, the author and perfecter of their faith, that they might finish these next few years well. Uh, keep them in a firm foundation. And Father, I also pray for their parents who are excited for them to see their young persons entering this new phase of life. But they are also, uh, in a sense, dealing with that void of their young one going out into a different world. And so I pray that you'd strengthen them and comfort them. Help them to devise ways to encourage uh, their son or daughter as they go forth. And Lord, we thank you for Jesus. We love you. Uh, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you that you've chosen us before the foundation of the world and that you want us to live a life of worship for you. Not just what we do on Sunday mornings or Wednesday nights, but to give our bodies as a holy sacrifice to you, as it says in Romans 12:1. That is our true worship, lives that bring honor and glory to you every day. And that's what we want to do. And we ask these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus.